0: Good afternoon. Good uh, you're very welcome to this uh, public lecture uh, that's been organised, co-organised between the ADAPT Centre, the School of Law, the School of Religions, and the Library here in Trinity College and the DCU Institute of Ethics uh, as well. My name is Ekman O'Sullivan, Trinity College Dublin, but it's my great pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Johnny Soraka this morning and or this afternoon. And I will invite Vessel uh, Reiser, who is uh, in the ADAPT Center, who will do the introductions and share the session. Uh, Welcome, everybody, to this uh, this seminar this afternoon. I'm really happy to see so many of you coming here, even though it's so sunny outside. So it's it's a real pleasure for me to introduce uh, Johnny Sturrecker here. He has actually been my former professor at the University of Fenton, where I'm from. And I'm usually indebted to him because he's one of the reasons that I'm sitting here right now as a PhD student in the Adept Center. Um, And um, uh, Johnny um, has really original ideas about how to approach uh, technology from the viewpoint of ethics. And he kind of um, diverges from this idea that we should use ethics to prescribe Uh, to engineers, what they should do, what they shouldn't do. Um, But instead, uh, to to look at how we can actually design technologies to increase our well-being, to increase uh, our happiness as human beings. Um, So, um, during his his research, he has been looking into uh, uh, the ethics of virtual worlds, for example, also of, of, of online games. And um, he's also uh, hosting uh, a podcast about philosophy, uh, if you would be interested in it, where he is interviewing uh, philosophers from around the world, uh, which is called Such That Cast. Um, and without further ado, I would like to give Johnny the floor. And uh, I hope you will really enjoy this talk. Thank
1: you so much, Otto. I need to start out with a couple of disclaimers. Um, First of all, I'm completely physically unable to stand still, which means that I will probably move away from the mic once in a while. I'm going to try to project as good as I can. Uh, But if it becomes difficult to hear what I'm saying, please just stop me and say, Johnny, get back to the mic. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'll try to do my best. The other disclaimer that I want to make is that this is really sort of a 16-hour lecture. Um, But I thought that would bore you a bit too much. Uh, So I'm going to condense it to 40 minutes. And what that means is that the philosophers in the audience are going to hate me for being too shallow with philosophy. Uh, The psychologists in the audience are going to hate me for being too shallow with psychology, and the gamers in the audience will be too shallow for, blame me for being too shallow with uh, games and technology and so on. Uh, So uh, this is sort of the problem with doing interdisciplinary work: is that it's really hard to do justice to all the fields involved. Uh, But I'd be happy to talk about any of the sort of shallowness in the discussion afterwards. So just uh, keep your questions. So what I'd like to say is that I'm going to try to emphasize that ethics isn't all about what you should or shouldn't do, uh, responsibilities, uh, blaming people, and so on. Uh, I want to try to highlight the more positive side of ethics as well, uh, the side where ethics deals with also the good life. Uh, and it's not, so for, as many of you know, it's not a new development. This is what Plato and Aristotle were talking about 2,500 years ago, uh, and it's more important today than ever. Uh, Especially now that technology mediates everything in our lives. So that's roughly going to be the topic. I'm basically working in a field called philosophy of technology. Uh, It's a field that basically started with Heidegger and Elul and some of those classical old philosophers. Um, But this field has changed quite dramatically since those olden days. Uh, For those of you who know Heidegger, Heidegger used to talk about technology with a capital T and what that does with society and humans. And really, if you look at technology nowadays, there is no such thing as technology. It's too multifaceted. Uh, So this field has developed to become more and more empirical, be more and more empirically informed, uh, but also to focus on very particular technologies, because you can't make claims that sweep all technology. Uh, So even though I'm going to talk about technology and happiness in general today, I'm going to try to use uh, video games and virtual worlds and virtual reality as an example uh, for the kinds of things uh, that I'm going to be talking about. Uh, so this is basically what I mean by these empirical and these axiological turns. The empirical turn means that we're focusing much more on actual concrete technologies. The axiological turn means that we focus on the good life more than just questions of the right and the wrong, and this will become much clearer as we move on. But if you want to talk about happiness, and certainly if you want to talk about designing for happiness or designing for well-being, we need to have some kind of idea about what well-being is. And this is really a fundamental problem, because almost everything we do in life, we do for the sake of something else. Uh, you get your education in order to get a job, you get a job in order to earn money, you earn money in order to buy beer, uh, you buy beer in order to get drunk, I don't know. Uh, so we do everything in order to something else. So where does that chain end? Well, happiness is one of the few sort of end stations for that chain. So if you say that you do something because it makes you happy, doesn't make sense for me to ask you, well, why do you want to be happy? Like I think you most of us agree that that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Uh, so, but still, we're still chasing these instrumental values, doing things in order to something else. Ultimately it's supposed to end with happiness, and then we don't really know what happiness is. So one of the first things we need to have is some kind of theory about what happiness is. And there is where you can look to philosophy, And this is basically how I started my work in this field as well. I started looking at sort of Plato and Aristotle. Sort of, would Aristotle approve of Facebook? Uh, Would Plato have liked World of Warcraft? But I quickly realized that that's kind of a pointless thing to ask. Uh, So I started looking more into empirical research on happiness. So what can psychology tell us about what tends to make us happy? And can we use that knowledge? Can we use those findings to design technology accordingly? Uh, so the thing I'm going to really uh, emphasize here, and this is very controversial from a philosophical point of view, as a referee once told me, you can't answer philosophical questions with empirical research. Um, but I'm going to try to explain how I do this and how it's not entirely uh, blind and, and irresponsible. So instead of looking at sort of congruence with philosophical theories of the good life, I'm going to look at congruence with empirical research. Uh, and the issue with this empirical research on happiness is that very little of it is about technology. So, what we have to do is to look at the scant research there is and try to translate that into design principle, translate that into concrete technological features. And I'll sort of show you a lot of examples of how to really roughly do this. I should also say, by the way, that this talk is sort of increasingly a work in progress. Uh, So the earlier slides are going to be sort of more or less uh, the basics of a lot of this. Uh, The very last slides are things that I'm thinking about the last couple of weeks. So this is sort of uh, how the sausage is made. You're sort of looking into the kitchen of Of philosophy being done. Um, So it's going to get a bit controversial, perhaps even, and a bit sort of, uh, well, at least there should be enough food for thought at the end. So let me say a bit about this sort of uh, empirical research that I'm talking about. So, first of all, how on earth can you measure happiness? It seems like an insane thing to do, and in some ways it is. But psychologists, no offense to the psychologists in the audience, but I have a sense sometimes that psychologists have a bit of an inferiority complex. Like, we're dealing with this really messy mind thing, but we don't have numbers. Like, we want to have numbers, too, just like the physicists and the mathematicians. Uh, So, of course, what psychologists do is to operationalize, as it's called, Uh, have a certain set of tests and operations that allow you to arrive at a certain number, and, yay, once you get numbers, then you can start doing real science. Then you can start comparing... (laughs) Uh, and uh, making interventions and that kind of stuff. Uh, things like IQ, for instance, is the perfect example of this way of putting numbers on something that is sort of inherently unquantifiable in some sense. Uh, the same thing happens with happiness as well. So they have basically uh, different kinds of tests that basically allow you to arrive at a number uh, that sort of identifies your level of happiness. Which seems kind of weird, but I'm going to try to justify that it is at least a source of inspiration, even though it certainly doesn't give uh, the final answer to any of these questions. So when they do this kind of research, they use many different kinds of measurements. Uh, And the numbers and findings I'm going to talk about very, very soon are going to be typically some meta-studies that take all of these different types of measurements into account. Uh, One of the ways in which they measure this is by using the psychologist's favorite tool, uh, questionnaires. Uh, And these are basically questionnaires where people are asked to reflect on their lives. Uh, In general, do you feel that your life is close to your ideal? Do you feel you've reached your goals? If you have the conditions you need in order to flourish, and so on, and so on, and so on. And then you end up with some kind of scale between 0 and 10. Um, but that's just half the picture. Like, these are the kinds of studies they use when. Uh, okay, I should say, by the way, first of all, I'm Norwegian originally, so if I say something bad about Norway today, which I will, um, <laughs> I feel justified in doing so. Uh, but these are the kinds of measurements where Scandinavia and Norway are reported to be the happiest countries in the world. There uh, you have sort of the conditions for happiness, which to do, with that sort of uh, joy of life happiness. Mm. You don't have that in Scandinavia at all, that's why I left. Uh, <laughs> but it is part of the puzzle of it all. Uh, so you need to add other measurements to this as well. Uh, so, in addition to these sort of reflective questionnaires, they typically add sort of real time pings, real time measurements, where you typically have like a pager or a smartphone app where people are asked, what are you doing right now, and how happy would you say that you are? Uh, and for both of these two, uh, the individual doesn't matter at all. But once you start having massive amounts of data across different cultures, different demographics, and so on, then slowly but surely you start seeing these patterns emerging between what kinds of activities and experiences tend to make people report that they are feel happier. Uh, so it's very important for me to emphasize that as well. Now, none of the things I'm going to talk about are going to be necessary conditions for a good life, which is sort of what philosophers should be talking about. Uh, what I'll be talking about is these kinds of activities and experiences tend to make a lot of people report that they feel either more happy or that they feel more of a sense of purpose so maybe we should look into that maybe we should look into trying that ourselves maybe we should look into designing technology according to that and again i'll show you many examples of this too. Uh, in order to get a bigger picture you typically also add uh different kinds of statistics and welfare markers uh beta sort of a priori theories as well uh you add typically a dash of neuroscience uh, even if very controversial, you might also want to think a little bit in terms of evolutionary psychology to see if you can get sort of additional uh, ideas from that. Uh, and then, what I like about this field, after all, is that they are very, very aware that this is controversial. So, it's one of the fields in psychology where there's sort of most attention to reproducibility and meta studies uh, and validity and so on and so on. So, again, most of the things I'm going to talk about are the results of meta studies. So, not one single experiment sort of findings that occur again and again across many, many different kinds of experiments and studies. Okay. So, the question is, of course, can we measure happiness? And just to say a little bit more about this field, uh, it's a field called Positive Psychology, and it was inaugurated by Michael Seligman, uh, only sort of in the late 90s, it was just like a 20-year-old field, uh, and Seligman, when he became president of the American Psychological Association. He basically said that, ah, psychologists, you need to lighten up a bit. Uh, We've been focusing on depression and mental illness and all the negative things in life for so long now. Maybe we should look at some of the positive stuff as well. Not just curing illness and bringing us back to normal, but also what can bring us beyond normal. Um, So we started this field just 20 years ago, and now we're starting to see some of the outcome of this research, which I will uh, get back to. So just as a very rough starting point, uh, I know that I really don't like pie chart myself, but it kind of illustrates sort of the rough uh, distribution of what kinds of sources of happiness there are. So first of all, coming from twin studies and those kinds of studies, uh, it seems that a large portion of your level of well-being is determined by whatever it is you're born with. Uh, and this typically has to do with uh, your levels of aggression and other kinds of behavioral predispositions, uh, your likelihood of mental illness, and those kinds of things. To some degree, you're born with some of that. And that affects sort of it seems pretty arbitrary, but so sort of roughly half your happiness is determined by things you can't really do a whole lot about. Uh, this other 10% here, again, weird number, but just interpret it as very little of your happiness is determined by things happening to you. Uh, This is one of the first things they really found, that when they studied things that we believe would affect our happiness, it didn't really seem to do so lastingly. So one of the first studies they did, they almost wanted to sort of calibrate their instruments. So they compared people who had just won tons of money in the lottery, and they compared that with people who had just lost their legs. Uh, And they wanted to measure sort of what is the difference in happiness after sort of monumental events like that. And they found, sure enough, in the weeks and months afterwards, uh, people who won the lottery reported being much happier. People who lost their leg reported being more unhappy. But in many cases, just after two, three, four weeks, a lot of them sort of bumped back to the level they were at before uh, those kinds of things happened. Uh, Even in the tragic events, a lot of people report being happier after those tragic events happened, uh, because it made them sort of rethink their priorities in life and so on. But in general, things happening to you doesn't really affect your happiness that much, according to this research. This 40% bulk here, which does uh, have some lasting effects, are basically intentional activities. These are things that you decide to do, activities you decide to pursue yourself, things you basically decide to prioritize in life. Those are the kinds of things that seem to have a much more lasting effect. And those are the kinds of numbers that I will be talking about very soon. I wanted to do some sort of an experiment in this room, but it's kind of difficult for logistical and sort of privacy reasons as well. Uh, so let's just do it sort of internally in our own minds instead. Uh, so again, try to just uh, think just for a few seconds. If you were to give your level of happiness a number uh, between 0 and 10, which number would you give yourself? Uh, so 0 basically means that you want to die right now. Uh, 10 basically means that your life could not really possibly be much better than what it is. Uh, and the question is, which number would you give yourself if you were to give yourself a number? Uh, and don't think right now by the way, because then it depends way too much on me, uh, but sort of <laughs> roughly uh, over the last few weeks and months and sort of the prospects in your coming months and so, if you had to give yourself a number between 0 and 10, which number would you give yourself? Just think about that for a couple of seconds. Okay, now I'm very, very curious about how representative you really are of the general population. Uh, and this is where I'm going to try to do my mind-reading magic trick. Uh, if you're not entirely unrepresentative, uh, the vast majority of you are now thinking about a 7 or an 8, uh, which really seems to be the most consistent number when it comes to these kinds of things. Uh, so this thing on the left is sort of the reflective questionnaire kind of numbers. This thing on the right is sort of the real-time measurement uh, measurements of happiness, uh, and they seem to very often support each other, with some very important exceptions, which I will get back to soon. Uh, but in general, most people tend to rank themselves at a 7 or an 8. Of course, if something bad happened to you recently or, or there are different kinds of good things happened to you recently, you've got to sort of spike up or down and so on. But the vast majority tend to find themselves there. Uh, don't be too worried if your number was lower. Like, there are tons of things you can do to get happier than <laughs> uh, And also, we tend to get happier the older we get. So that's also a bonus. Uh, so just wait a bit. There's uh, already a lesson here. Like, if you look around at all the miserable people around, you might think that most people are really unhappy, but no, really not. Most people actually rank themselves as being quite happy. And so the implicit measurement here is, as well, like if you gave yourself a 7 or an 8, you sort of also implicitly say that you think you're happier than most other people. So most people think you're happier than most other people, uh, it seems, uh, which is interesting enough in itself. Uh, but let's look more at the background of these numbers. Uh, so I'm going to go through some very consistent findings now, some of the most uh, clearest indicators uh, of determinants of happiness. And I'm going to sort of slowly but surely apply this to technology to see how this reflects on technology and how we can sort of use this to techn- design technologies in particular ways. Uh, one thing that I think many of you have heard about already is this concept of flow. It's one of the most uh, popular things to come out of positive psychology. There's been many sort of TED talks about it and so on. So I think maybe many of you will recognize this. Uh, so let me just uh, describe it very quickly. So flow is basically a mental state that you find yourself in if you're engaged in an activity that's very, very difficult. Well, not very difficult necessarily, but you're engaged in a difficult uh, activity and your skill level just perfectly matches the level of difficulty. So the y-axis here is the level of difficulty, Uh, the x-axis is uh, your skill level, and basically the point you want to be to get into this flow mental state is way up in the top right corner. And the weird thing about that state is that you're not really happy when you're in that mental state uh, because you're so occupied in the activity you're doing. Uh, If you want to think about something concrete here, think about your favorite sport or or playing an instrument or anything that sort of requires skill in one way or another. So when you engage really in activity and your skill level sort of just barely matches the level of difficulty, you're pushing yourself to the limit. Uh, you're not happy in a moment, but what the research shows is that people who regularly have these kinds of activities tend to be much, much, much happier than people who do not have these kinds of uh, activities. Uh, and like I said, uh, sports and instruments and so on are sort of classical examples of this, because one of the key ingredients you need in order to get this going is that it must be possible to increase the level of difficulty as you get better. Like If you get better and it doesn't get more difficult, you are just gonna sort of drift into uh, control and relaxation and so on. So it must be impossible to sort of increase the level of difficulty as you move on. Uh, and this has very important implications for technology, uh, because technology is just perfect for doing that automatically. Uh, and I'm going to get back to this point a bit later. I'm going to go more in-depth into this towards the end of the talk, because this is where things like video games and so on are really come into the picture. So just keep this in mind. I will get back to this uh, a bit later. Uh, yeah. Chip sent me high, who is one of the... Uh, the main proponents behind this theory. Uh, he has a quite oppressive analysis of society, saying that one of the big problems in society today, uh, some of the unhappier people in society, are the ones who basically oscillate between anxiety at work, because you feel like you don't have the skills to master your job. So you're in a state of anxiety at work, and then when you come home, what do we all do? Well, we turn on the TV. TV doesn't really require a whole lot of skill. Uh, so you end up in this state of apathy. Uh, and one of the worst things when it comes to happiness is to sort of oscillate between anxiety and apathy. Whether it's anxiety at work, apathy at home, or vice versa, uh, is one of uh, the really bad things. And one of the most important sort of uh, intervention strategies of psychologists now is to try to sort of make people find uh, the sort of flow activities either at work or at home. Uh, a lot of us can find it at work, uh, but then it's just so important to find it at home instead. Uh, to find it in in the activities. And technology is a very good way of doing so, as I will get back to uh, in a little while. But before getting there, let me get through some other findings as well. And I'm going to be a bit quicker about applying this uh, to various kinds of technologies as we move on. Uh, First of all, uh, all the cheesy pop songs are absolutely true. Uh, Money can't buy you happiness. Uh, Or at least uh, the research is a bit sort of divergent on this area. Uh, But in general, it seems like the consensus across most studies is that sort of absolute income doesn't really affect your happiness all that much? Um, actually, if you look at not the sort of Norwegian happiness, the sort of conditions of the good life, but if you look at people reporting feeling happy, uh, then sort of really poor islands in, the, in, in, uh, in different islands and poor islands and so on tend to report being feeling much happier than sort of affluent societies like Scandinavia and so on. Uh, so, level of income, absolute level doesn't seem to have that much of an effect. What does have an effect, kind of for good or worse, uh, is that you are richer than your neighbor. Um, so, so this notion of keeping up with the Joneses, or trying to do better than the Joneses, that gives you some of that sense of happiness. So not money itself, but money as a way of status comparison. Because status comparison is something that really not only uh, fosters happiness in a sense, but also is a very, very strong motivational factor. This is something that game companies have really started Tapping uh, into as well, uh, because you're no longer in games. You no longer really have these global leaderboards where you have to compete with people across the world. Because no matter how much you're gaming, you're never going to be able to compete with the best players in the world. So, what more and more games are moving towards is to have leaderboards consisting of your Facebook friends or your Xbox Live friends, uh, because these are people you can compete with. You can beat your mother. Uh, Uh, And that is, again, sort of the status comparison issue, and that gets the motivation going, and it also gives a sense of happiness uh, that you won't really get if you have to compete with uh, the whole world. Uh, You also find some of these effects when you look at Facebook, uh, and this is of course something you're all familiar with, those of you... How many of you are on Facebook, by the way? Raise your hand if you're on Facebook. Uh, Roughly half. So the privacy-conscious people and the not-so-conscious people. I'm on Facebook myself, so uh, I'll do that. Um, They found that the effect is also to be seen on Facebook, of course, because those of you who are not on Facebook, uh, the key thing about Facebook is to brag as much about your life as possible, uh, to make everybody think that your life is wonderful and perfect. Uh, And of course, a lot of people think so. So when they see other people, uh, they're constantly going on vacation, uh, and so on and so on and so on. It seems like other lives are better than yours. And that, again, that sort of status comparison has that sort of indirect feedback on you as well. I will get back to this issue in a little while as well, because it's a bit more intricate than this, really. Um, there's, uh, so there's more to be said about that too. Uh, another sort of weird thing that they found, and this sort of, again, illuminates that a lot of the, what I'm talking about now are correlations. And it's sometimes really hard to find out what the causality is behind it. Uh, but one of the things that seem to pop up, you're trying to control for all the variables still there seems to be a sort of, a of well-being coming just from having been close to happy people so if some of you in this audience now reported that you were at a nine uh, or even a ten uh the rest of us are really jealous first of all uh, but not only that we are all happier because of it because happiness actually does seem to spread like a germ to some degree uh, and it's very hard to sort of, find the sound behind Uh, but it seems to have to do something with uh, body gestures, facial gestures, and so on, and that sort of rubs off on you as well. Uh, And and it's very, very clear to be found if you try to control for all the other variables. Just being close to happy people in itself uh, has a very dramatic effect on your own happiness. And they seem to have this remarkable ability as well. Uh, So if you look at this picture, uh, one of them is a real smile and one of them is a fake smile. Uh, Which one do you think is a real smile? Why is the one on the right the real smile? Some of you did very quickly, some of you took a bit longer. Uh, when you look at these kinds of images, we seem to have this sort of immediate, uh, almost sort of instinctual recognition of which is the real smile and which is the fake smile. And then if you look a bit closer, then you can sort of start seeing that always by the wrinkles in the eyes and things like that. We seem to have sort of this immediate recognition of genuine happiness, and that recognition in itself uh, sort of gives you. Some of that boost as well. Uh, and this is where things uh, become uh, sort of interesting uh, because this is where I'm sort of really curious, and this sort of highlights the kind of research that I'm doing. Uh, so if you get these kinds of effects in the real world, that sort of being in physical proximity to somebody happy might be beneficial for you as well. Can you we get the same thing going in Facebook, for instance, or in better in virtual reality or in video games? Or is there something lacking there? So that's what I mean about translating this research. Can we, excuse me, can we reproduce this in a virtual world? And I'll get back to that uh, in a short moment as well. Uh, by far, the strongest determinant of happiness is being social and having a sense of belonging to a community. Uh, if you look at this kind of research, it seems like it's a necessary almost for like 99% of people need to have a sense of belonging, a sense of being social. Uh, but I wanted to emphasize the 1% as well. Uh, in the sense that some people don't need this, and this is the same for everything I'm talking about today. None of these are necessary. You have people who are entirely happy being entirely uh, socially isolated as well, like Tibetan monks and so on, Uh, but there are very, very few who can do so. For the vast majority of being social, having a sense of belonging seems to be absolutely essential for happiness, and one of the strongest determinants there is. Uh, One big part of this is to have somebody to share your experiences with. Uh, so, I said, that things happening to you might not necessarily affect you that much, but being able to share the things that happen to you with somebody else, that uh, seems to have actually a, a higher effect than the thing happening to you itself. Uh, but, on a certain condition, so one of the conditions is that you must feel that you get some kind of genuine response, that somebody sort of gives you a pat on the back, or sort of looks you in the eye and says, yes, you really deserve that. Or if it's something bad, that something that comforts you, uh, takes your hand, uh, pass you over the hair, uh, this is very culturally different, by the way. In Norway, nobody ever hugs each other ever. Uh, so it's very different from culture to culture, what counts as a genuine response, uh, but you need to sort of perceive it as such from your point of view. Which again, of course, raises the issue, can you reproduce this in Facebook? Can you reproduce this in virtual worlds as well? Or does it require some kind of physical gesture? Uh, and this is the point where, uh, really, uh, it's all about perception and this is the good thing and the bad thing with this research, as I will emphasize uh, throughout, that a lot of this is entirely about perception. So it doesn't matter, matter whether you get a genuine response when you're sharing, it matters whether you perceive it to be a genuine response. And the interesting thing here is that this seems to be entirely uh, cultural to a large degree, as I mentioned, but also generational. So uh, for people who, sort of my age and older, who sort of grew up without the internet, who grew up without Facebook and so on, we seem to sort of require a physical gesture. We seem to require sort of a pat on the back or a hug or, or at least somebody looking you in the eye. Uh, if you look at younger generation, uh, it seems like that is not as necessary. So a Facebook like doesn't really count much for me, but if you look at sort of 14 year olds, uh, it seems to uh, have a much, much, much higher effect. Uh, for sort of 14 year old girls, there's like an actual sort of ratio between how many lights you get within a certain amount of time and you can really accurately uh, predict how sad the depressed is going to be afterwards. Uh, it's like 14 year old sad so it doesn't matter that much. Uh, but in general it has a much higher effect on them than it has on us. Uh, it seems to be generational and very contingent a lot of this. And I'll get back to this uh, a bit later as well. Uh, this is sort of why I'm trying to get going in my research as well. I'm sort of trying to look at this thing I talked about about sharing how impo- or or so, excuse me, uh, physical gestures and bodily gestures, how important that is for sort of, uh, having this sort of happiness germ spreading, if I can be a bit precise. Uh, so what I'm trying to get going now is this research project where you sort of, try to map real time uh, your facial gestures onto your avatar in a virtual world or in a video game, and see if some of the same effects can be reproduced. Uh, and I see some sort of this very nice interplay between research and implementation and implementation learning from research and vice versa. Uh, so that's again, emphasizes the, the kind of stuff uh, that I want to do with this, uh, with this background. Um, I wanted to also emphasize that, it, like a lot of what I 'm talking about a bit now has been very sort of intuitive, uh, and it seems sort of easy to sort of argue uh, and be not in line. what I say I hopefully uh, seems to re- uh, resonate with a lot of you. Uh, but there is some weird stuff coming out of this as well uh, that is sort of intuitive on second thought, but uh, it's still a bit strange. Uh, so when it comes to perceptual pleasure. Uh, What seems to really do the trick, so pleasure from your senses, uh, your taste, smell, uh, eyes and ears, and so on, Uh, what seems to really do the trick there is if something appears to be entirely chaotic uh, and you're just bombarded by stimuli, but because of training or experience, you can take that massive information overload and find patterns and start structuring that information. Uh, It's the kind of stuff, and again, to be very, very imprecise, it's the kind of stuff that makes your brain go wee and spew out all those wonderful chemicals. Uh, It's something your brain really allows to do. Uh, Just to illustrate this, I don't know if any of you recognize this. This was like all the rage back in the 90s, but nobody seems to remember them anymore. Uh, It's a random dot stereogram. uh, And it's, again, sort of seems entirely chaotic. But if you train a bit, and uh, the technique for this is that you should basically try to squint your eyes, try to focus your eyes roughly two meters behind uh, the PowerPoint screen. and if you do that, eventually your brain will pick up on this sort of computer-generated pattern, and your brain will actually construct this sort of holographic uh, shark uh, in three dimensions sort of floating in mid-air. Uh, it's very hard to do on a PowerPoint, uh, so I don't expect you to be able to do it now. Uh, but look up random dots, stereogram online, if you want to look into this. Uh, it's a fascinating phenomenon. And the rush you get when it finally works when your brain just finds that pattern uh, is really, really rewarding. Now, this is of course a weird example, uh, but a more common example of this is if you drink wine not just to get drunk, as all the mediums do, um, but you drink wine in order to sort of pick out the different nuances. Oh, there's a bit of French dirt and a bit of pencil and so on. Like, if you can do that kind of stuff, that's again the stuff that your brain absolutely loves to do. Like, bombarded by stimuli, but because of training and experience, you can sort of pick out the different structures. Or if you're like a music theory buff, And you can take this very complex piece of music, but pick out the different structures, how the different instruments come in and out of it and so on. Again, the kind of stuff your brain absolutely loves to do. Uh, And I think this is very important implications uh, for user interface and so on. Like I don't like bashing Microsoft too much, but Microsoft has a large fault uh, in the sense that it has basically instantiated this paradigm where computer screens and computer interfaces should be as simple as possible. Uh, and it really doesn't give you any sort of perceptual pleasure when everything is designed in such a way that your grandmother can use it, or, 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 or whatever it might be. Um, what well, seems to have a much more effect like that is if you have a rather complex interface, but through training, through experience, you have sort of figured out that interface. And if you look at people working with something rather complex, something like Photoshop for instance, uh, try to look at somebody who's an expert at Photoshop and see how they work. They never go into the menu and sort of choose the right action. It's just a blur of hotkeys and mouse gestures and just sort of frantic information transfer back and forth. Uh, and it sort of puts them in a state of flow and it also gets a lot of, sort of perceptual pleasure stuff going. Uh, so th- again, this is the kind of research that really uh, calls for a radical redesign of many of the user interfaces we use. Uh, and considering that many of us spend our entire workday in front of a computer interface, this is a kind of stuff that really could uh, improve our happiness on a daily basis. Well, so again, a bit weird, but it has sort of these concrete implications uh, if you sort of translate it. Even some caveats, which I don't really have to go into, but that's it. Um, let's see, I'm doing on time. Oh dear. Um, okay, I'll be speeding up this a little bit. Um, when it comes to happiness, uh, health is another sort of weird issue in the sense of how healthy you feel is much more happy than how, it's much more important than how healthy you are. Uh, So in other words, anything that sort of makes you feel more unhealthy than you really are is really detrimental to your happiness. And the problem is that technology does this to a large degree, Uh, especially if you're like me and you never really go to the doctor. Uh, So if you have some kind of weird symptom going, what do you do? Well, you Google it. Uh, And when you Google it or you go to WebMD, well, you find out that basically you have this horrible disease uh, or this syndrome that hasn't been seen since the 1800s. You have it now. Uh, (laughs) This is the kind of big problem. And also if you're even more like me, you look this up online, and do you go to the doctor afterwards? No. Yeah. You just walk around believing that you have cancer in all kinds of parts part of your body, and that all kinds of weird diseases are just <laughs> ravaging your body right now. So we start feeling sick, uh, even though we really shouldn't be. This is a big societal problem, and not a reason I left Norway, by the way. So this <laughs> obsession with health... Uh, this obsession with, with breast cancer screening, uh, DNA diagnostics, basically this obsession that you are sick, they just haven't found it yet. Uh, <laughs> it's really badly happiness, so we need to be a bit more lax about these kind of things. Uh, in my view of this. Um, I shouldn't say this in this room because uh, this seems like a highly educated room, uh, but education doesn't really factor into your happiness that much. Um, what's important here is actually that interpersonal skills are more important for happiness than sort of intelligence uh, and educational skills. Uh, and although I'm generally a techno-optimist, this is one of the areas where I'm actually quite critical of some of the developments we're seeing. Uh, because if you look at students' uh, remote teaching, remote learning, MOOCs, all that kind of stuff, yes, you get the knowledge transfer, but you don't get sort of the interpersonal skills that you really learn from a studying at the university, for instance. If, if there are any teachers in the room, Try to imagine the difference between a first-year bachelor and a second-year bachelor when it comes to uh, ability to reflect uh, and so on and so on, the ability to deal with other people. It's not because they learned so much programming in that year. It's because they spent a year away from their mother. It's because they got too drunk one night and did something stupid and had to deal with it the next day. Like, that's the kind of stuff that teaches you the personal skills, which seems to be much more important for happiness. So I'm actually the one area where I'm quite critical is when it comes to remote education, uh, even remote working. Uh, those kinds of stuff. It's so important to keep the social aspects going and not sort of isolate uh, each other uh, even more than we we're already doing. Uh, yeah, I'm going to be quite quick about this. Uh, and this is why philosophers often hate me, because philosophers like to talk about authentic happiness and sort of some kind of external measure of happiness. Uh, but according to this research, there is no, really no such thing. And what this currently means is that technology can be a sort of second-to-best alternative. Uh, so they did this one research where they basically compared, uh, uh, they basically wanted to show the effects of nature on happiness. And they found a very clear relationship between nature and happiness. So one group went into this fantastic sublime nature, one group was held behind the a more urban environment, and sure enough, the people in nature reported being more happy. Uh, but they had a third control group, which was more sort of in an IMAX rendition of beautiful nature. Uh, and they got a lot of the same effects from being in real nature, not as good as their real thing. But much better than nothing at all. Uh, so I think when we talk about technologies, we need to be a bit realistic as well. That Often technology doesn't give you the best there is, but it gives you much better than nothing at all. And if you look at sort of the lack of nurses we're going to have in a few years, of course a care robot is not going to be as good as the real thing. Of course communicating online is not going to be as good as the human touch and the human presence but it's going to be a heck of a lot better than nothing at all. And there's a lot of conservatism in rehabilitation centers and so on. And when it comes to implementing these kinds of things, because, oh, this is inferior, this is a technological surrogate, this is a technological fix, or it's bad. But no, it's not necessarily bad. It might at least be much better than nothing at all. Uh, Now, as I said, a lot of the things I've been talking about up until now are sort of the immediate sense of happiness. Uh, not entirely, immediate. these can last for weeks and months and so on, but it's a kind of happiness that tends to perhaps rub off a bit uh, or sort of drop off a bit after a while. So, in the literature, you see some of these interesting uh, sort of interplays with a sense of happiness and a sense of meaningfulness, and sometimes they come apart. Uh, if you look at, and I hope I'm not offending anyone, but um, parents, if you look at parents and measure uh, parents' levels of happiness, uh, parents, if you measure them in real time, so the most unhappy <laughs> people in the world. Uh, if you measure their sense of meaningfulness, their sense of purpose, they're some of the happiest people in the world. So that's one of the areas where these things really come apart. Uh, so that's what I'm getting more and more interested in. Can you sort of also get the sense of meaningfulness from technology? And it's a very hard thing to do. Uh, but i will try to explain some possible way, ways uh, to. Uh, go there. So one of the things that really seems to give some sense of meaningfulness at least is being altruistic, being ethical. And this is some of the best things to come out of this research. Ethical people, altruistic people, much happier than selfish people. So you can sort of pat yourself on the back if you're a good person. Uh, it makes you happier. Uh, it doesn't have to be sort of grand and sort of saving uh, humanity from poverty or anything like that. Band. Just every day, tiny acts of kindness tends to have a very lasting effect. Uh, helping somebody across the street. Uh, picking up something that somebody lost, like those tiny things tend to have a quite dramatic effect. Plato uh, and Aristotle were talking about this, how you had to have an ethical life in order to have a good life. They had no empirical support, uh, but now there's a lot of empirical support for this actually uh, being the case. Uh, and you can do this online as well, uh, as I will get back to in a moment. Uh, but this is where they also need to be very cautious. Because as I said, it's enough that you perceive that you're doing something ethical. And you see this a lot on Facebook and so on. Ooh, I joined a group in the support of cancer research. I've done my work for today. Uh, that makes you feel like it has a squishy happy feeling inside because you feel like you contribute. But you haven't made the world a better place at all. Uh, I've changed my Twitter profile photo in support of the Iranian revolution. Mm. Doesn't really make that much of a difference. Uh, so that's the problem, this is what is known as slacktivism, that we get some of that sort of happiness, sort of self-smug sense of self-satisfaction without actually doing something that changes the world. So this is the problem with a sort of perceptional part of this. Uh, and I'm mean, going to be getting back to that a bit later on as well. Oh. Uh, so let me start looking at some of the... Some of the people who tend to... And I want to be careful about how I phrase this. The people who tend to most consistently report themselves as being happy and feeling that they have a sense of purpose in life. Who tends to rank at the top of both of those charts? Uh, well, if you look at it, then again, these are not necessary conditions. These are just tendencies. Uh, but what tends to be the case is that they satisfy two different conditions. Uh, one is that they identify something they're good at. And when I say identify, I mean that's sort of in a strong philosophical sense. So not just that you are oh, playing guitar, but that you all are a guitar player. Not just that you all do programming, no, that you are a programmer or you, you are a teacher or you are a taxi driver. Like whatever it is, if you see it as part of your identity and you think you're good at it, that's the kind of stuff that already gives you a lot of that sense of purpose uh, and that sense of happiness. Already important because society is too obsessed with, with improving the bad things, the things you're bad at. Uh, society should be much more focused on le- letting you further improve the things you're already good at. Like that's where happiness ultimately lies. Uh, now this has already some implications for technology, because how do you identify what you are do that? Well, there are different ways of doing that. Uh, you can sort of do online questionnaires, this is something called a VIA survey. Uh, you can find it online and do it, and you will basically answer all these questions, and at the end of it you get a list of what are sort of the most important strengths in your life and what are the least important strengths in your life. Uh, this is probably not saying for privacy reasons, but this is me. Uh, for those of you who know me a little bit, it uh, might come caused me a, a surprise that I don't have any kind of spirituality or hope. Um, but uh, a love of learning and humor and that kind of stuff is something that's really, really important in my life. Those are sort of areas that I want uh, to uh, develop further and so on. Uh, I know a lot of you think I have a really bad sense of humor, but still. Uh, it is important to me. I'm not saying that I'm good at it. Uh, so you can do these kinds of things, uh, but it's really not the way to do it, honestly. Uh, The way to really find out what you're good at is just to try out a whole lot of different stuff. Uh, Basically, experiment until you stumble across the kinds of things you love doing. Uh, And there's just no way to predict that very often. The fact that I'm standing here right now, Somebody asked me 15 years ago whether I would want to stand in this room in front of all of you guys right now at Trinity College, nonetheless, I would have cracked my pants and ran away, like I was so nervous in front of crowds before. Uh, but then I was sort of forced into it, I was sort of stumbled into it, and realised that well, this is actually something I love doing, uh, and something that I couldn't have anticipated at all. So trying a lot of different stuff seems to be the key to finding out what you're good at and what of gives you, that sense of purpose. Uh, And this is part of the problem with technology, with virtual worlds, with video games and so on, is that there are very few skills you can identify in games. Uh, It seems like virtual reality, there should be no limits to that, but at the end of the day, you're in front of the screen, uh, maybe with Oculus Rift or something, but typically you are very limited in what you can do. It's not the same as this whole analog world out there, where you have many more options to figure out what you're good at. So again, this is one area where I think we need to be a bit conscious about technology because it doesn't give you the same range. Uh, I'm going to be a bit quick, but if you want uh, (laughs) philosophical support for this instead of empirical, uh, this is of course what Nietzsche was ranting about back in the good old days, uh, danger alone acquaints us with your strength, and so on. So he also advocated this sort of dangerous life. Uh, Rodman is sort of Norwegian social democrat, uh, maximum life. Uh. Yes. Uh, so that's one way. So, but as I said, the real people who really tend to identify themselves as having sort of this sense of purpose and sense of meaningfulness, not only identify this, but they also have another condition, which is that they feel like they use that strength for something they perceive to be meaningful. And again, it's all about perception. Uh, but the typical things that tend to occur again and again is that people have a sense that they use their skills for something bigger than themselves, that they contribute to something bigger than themselves. Uh, the classic old examples, again, anything having to do with religion and sort of eternity and immortality, uh, making a change to the world that is lasting like those are the kinds of things where people tend to derive a sense of meaning from. Um, And I think you can find this already with a lot of online stuff. Uh, You might ask yourself, who is writing Wikipedia? Who the heck has the time to be doing all of this? Who are subtitling anime movies uh, for no money at all and no reputation at all? Well, it's people who do it because of this. They feel like they contribute to Creative Commons, they contribute to open source entirely without any kind of reward the only reward being that they feel like they contribute to something bigger than themselves. So it's an alternative to to more religious activities, for instance. Uh, So it really explains a lot of these activities, I believe. Um, Now, the thing that I really got interested in lately is, what about games? Uh, Can you really get any of that sense of meaningfulness uh, from games? Um, Because ultimately, like I mentioned, I'm going to be a bit quick about it, but I think you got the general point by now. Uh, Games are just perfect for flow. Uh, because games can automatically adjust the level of difficulty uh, based on how good you are. So you don't need to, oh, I need to find a more difficult song to play now. No, the game will do that automatically for you. Uh, so it's perfect for getting a just data flow, but games also tend to foster social isolation, at least some games. So what the positive of flow, you get the negative of social isolation, and they sort of cancel each other out. This is why we need to be careful about just applying this stuff blindly. We need to think about what are the side effects as well. Uh, but there are games that sold this. This is my favorite game. It's called Rock Band. Uh, and it's basically a game where you can plug your guitar and your keyboard and your drums into the game. Uh, and you can play along to the no-tie way, Uh, and the best way to play this game is to have seven people in the living room doing it at the same time. You get the flow, you get the social interaction, and all of that good stuff going. Uh, But even if you might even say that gaming involves identification of strength, can you say that gaming is a meaningful activity? Uh, And this is one of the things I got interested in lately. How can you create meaningfulness in this game? Because they are fragile. They are sort of uh, temporary worlds. So how can you make them meaningful? Uh, I'll be a bit quick about this as well, uh, but just to explain some of my terminology, when I talk about virtual actions or gaming actions, I see all of them as having one intro virtual component and one extra virtual component. So what I mean by intro virtual is basically things that happen in the game itself. What I mean by extravirtual are effects outside the game. Uh, so I want to try this first look, can we get these effects outside the game that gives you a sense of purpose? And second of all, I want to look at a more difficult question. Can you also create things inside the game itself that creates a sense of meaningfulness? Uh, I hope this will be clear with some examples. Um, And again, you can be ethical in games, uh, and you can help uh, educate other people in games. Uh, If anybody is very easily offended, you can close your eyes now. I'm just going to show you a very quick uh, uh, screenshot of an actual conversation going on. I've conveniently truncated it, so to get rid of the worst. Uh, But this was me miraculously beating one of the best players in pro-evolution soccer. Uh, He didn't like that at all. He accused me of doing something called lagging, which is a cheating technique. Uh, And he told me to do all kinds of interesting things to myself, which I wanted to tell you more about. Um, So how do you deal with these kinds of people? And this was a notorious bad person. Uh, So, I did a stupid academic thing. So, I wrote in this long message to back where I explained the technical details of latency, uh, I explained uh, the ethical fallacy of jumping to conclusions, uh, and so on and so on and so on. Uh, And I expected even worse to come back. Uh, ten minutes later, um, I got this message. Okay, sorry. <laughs> uh, we actually became really good friends afterwards, and he's now one of the one of one the more, one of the more sort of, positive players in this game. So in some sense, you can say that I was being entirely selfish here because this made me feel good. It made me feel like I had done something. that I, have, so I helped raise this hopeless child in some way. We uh, so that's the kind of stuff that can give you meaning uh, sort of to the game. So not inside the game, but the effects outside the game, so the effects on this person. Uh, they can also be you know, more concrete. So you have certain games now. For instance, this game called Fold It, uh, which basically is a game, sounds very boring in some sense, but you basically have to fold uh, molecular structures, figure out of the structure of enzymes and so on. So you need to rely on sort of your biology and chemistry expertise uh, in order to really succeed at this game. And there were these researchers who have been trying to figure out this real complex structure uh, of this retrovirus enzyme that was crucial for trying to figure out a cure for AIDS. And the researchers had spent a decade trying to figure out the structure of this enzyme, could not do it. Uh, They put it into the game, and the gamers collectively solved it in three weeks. So by using your skills in a game, even by being online or social, and in addition to that you help cure uh, AIDS, what can possibly be more meaningful than that? So it's possible to add that as well. Uh, this is another example where you help cure cancer uh, by playing a game. Uh, you basically a spaceship through this enormous database of DNA, and you help researchers identify anomalies by doing that. So again, extra virtual meaningfulness. Uh, but I want to conclude with what I find to be one of the most speculative part of this. Uh, can you do this introvertually as well? Uh, can create meaning inside the world. Well, it seems like well-being absolutely requires some sense of immortality in some sense. Or at least, like your efforts in a game, they can't be gone the next week, because that takes away that sense of meaningfulness. Uh, So we need to try to find some ways to create lasting virtual worlds. Is that at all possible? And if you look at games now, a lot of games try to do this artificially, to try to make you give this feeling that this is an eternal world. So a lot of games use like ruins like this to give you a sense that there's a long history. A lot of games use ghosts and so on to give a sense of of eternity to a game. But it's entirely artificial, of course. So can you get the real thing instead? Uh, And I think it is possible, but it raises a lot of interesting questions. Um, And just to illustrate how this works, and this is... I mentioned this in my class before, and a couple of people started crying. I'm very sorry if I made to cry, uh, but it's very understandable, because I almost did so myself and I heard about this first. Uh, this is a game on the Xbox Live. Uh, it's a rally-cross game. And basically, the way the game works is that if you get a new high score in the game, uh, your actual driving through this route is stored as a shadow card. Uh, so when somebody else plays the game later, they will see how you drove when you got the high score. If you do really well, you're going to drive past this shadow car. If you do really well, you'll see the shadow car uh, catch up with you and go uh, past past you. Uh, the really sad story was, uh, this, uh, he's now an adult, but he, talked, he told the story about playing this game uh, with his dad when he was a kid. And it was some of the most meaningful moments he had with his dad. His dad was, was rather absent and so on. But they had these really meaningful uh, moments when they played this game together. Uh, And then when he was very young, his dad died, unfortunately, and of course he really missed his dad. He was really sad about it for a long while. Uh, And then at some point, much later, he started playing this game again, and he realized that on the tracks where his dad had the high score, the shadow card was still there. So he could play this game and race against the shadow of his dad. He could see the mistakes his dad made when he played the game originally. Uh, But if he got a new high score, that shadow would be removed. So he would basically race through this crack, race against his dad's shadow, and then he would simply stop in front of the finishing line and wait for his dad's shadow card to come past him and beat him, just to make sure that this remained uh, eternal in some kind of sense. But when his Xbox is destroyed, this memory is going to be gone. So it shows the fragility of it all. It shows how close you are to something meaningful from a game, but still you have that fragility. So the thing that I got really obsessed by now is can you create this sense of eternity? in-game. And this is since I'm at uh, Trinity now, I just wanted to mention Barclay, uh, because basically what we're going to be looking at in the near future is a world that looks just like George Barclay, uh, and just like what George Barclay wrote right here at Trinity College. Uh, To be very quick about Barclay, because I'm running out of time, uh, to be quick about it, uh, basically what he said was that you need a god to keep the world going. Like, god is basically responsible for making everything happen. Uh, It's not like when we close our eyes, the world disappears, because God is always watching the world. So God sort of maintains this world. Uh, And this is exactly what we're gonna need for a virtual world to function. We need some kind of gods to make sure that the virtual world persists. it's even more clear in a different philosopher, Malbranche, a uh, very weird philosopher. And people, actually, only people in Dublin read Malbranche back in the day, because he was rather weird. Really inspired Barclay. Uh, he died two days after having a fight with Barclay, actually. Like something weird happened there. Uh, but if you look at this quote from Malbranche, you can basically take uh, any mention of creator or created things and replace it with computer simulation. And you have some of the most precise definitions of virtual reality there are. Uh, so, uh, there's a contradiction in saying that you can move your virtual chair, no power can transport it whether the computer simulation does not transport it, nor fix or keep it where the computer simulation does not fix it or keep it. Uh, he's basically describing this computer simulations keeping this virtual world alive for eternity. So what God did for Barking Branch, we need companies to do for our virtual eternity, which raises a whole lot of critical issues. So who are these gods going to be? Uh, You have some companies who try to do this. This is a company called Eternity, and they try to promise you that they will store your memories forever and so on. Uh, But the problem is that you had another company that did this just before uh, and if you go to their website now, uh, this is what you're going to find. They basically (laughs) went bankrupt real soon after getting a lot of money for their promises. Uh, But then, all those memories were lost. So this fragility is what really is the big problem with true meaningfulness from technology and from virtual worlds. Lots of happiness, absolutely, but the sense of lasting meaningfulness which is very hard to do unless we can somehow figure out how to create gods that can sort of promise uh, eternity in some sense. So on that very sort of speculative uh, conjecture, uh, I'm going to leave you. So thank you.